If you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 22, that's where we are this morning. We got a little bit of a taste of it two weeks ago, starting, and I'm I'm using the same text, by the way, um, that we were in two weeks ago. We kind of got started with it, and so, Lord willing, we'll wrap it up with a few reflections for you and, and principles found therein that I think the Lord wants us to hear and to understand. So I'm going to read it, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll walk through it together. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, You, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Remember, the, the city of blood, the city under judgment. Declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, Thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst, so that her time may come, that makes idols to defile herself. You've become guilty by the blood that you have shed, defiled by the idols that you have made. You've brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I've made you a reproach to the nations, a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near, those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things, profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood. People in you who eat on the mountains, they commit lewdness in your midst. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles daughter-in-law. Another in you violates sister, father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. Take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain you have made at the blood that has been shed in your midst. Excuse me, the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations. And disperse you through the countries. I will consume your uncleanness out of you. And you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord. These are the very words of God. And so we say again, thanks be to God. Quite a list here that Ezekiel gives of different ways in which Israel is guilty. We have a list of sins detailing guilt specifically. In this part of Ezekiel, and it's not the first time, by the way, uh, and it's pretty common in prophetic literature, that the role of God here is almost like that of a prosecuting attorney, uh, declaring to Israel the the rap sheet, if you like, the reasons uh, for judgment, which is itself kind of its own lesson, if I can give you that sermon in like one or two sentences, that God is always... Uh, invested in making sure we understand that judgment against sin is not just cause. Okay? Judge, judgment against sin is, is balanced. Judgment against sin is uh, uh, right punishment, if you will, that, that, that fits the crime committed against heaven. And in this case, also against neighbors. Now, if you look at verse 6, you see that who gets addressed, behold, the princes of Israel in you, the rulers... The rulers are the one 
ones leading the people astray. While it was true that the list of various sins that you see in the middle of our text this morning were very likely being committed by an overwhelming majority of individuals living in Jerusalem, the fault is laid at the feet of the rulers because it was given to the rulers to model covenantal, uh, we would say biblical conduct before the people. This is why for Christians, actually, the virtue of our rulers matters as much as their wisdom or their cleverness or their strength. Because we believe that when you have evil rulers in the land, you're going to have a lot more evil going on in the land. I'm not saying that you can therefore sort of reduce the citizenry to uh, what people see, people do. But it is simply the reality that, a, that, that rulers and, and leaders set the, the bar or the standard for where it is we see virtue and, uh, and morality happening. Now, Ezekiel seems to be talking about different kinds of sins here, if you'll look with me at verse 4. In verse 4, we find you've become guilty by the blood you have shed. Okay, so that's obviously murder. We're starting there. Defiled by the idols you have made. Okay, idolatry. Fine. And brought your days near. That is brought the, uh, the, the, the timer, the clock for judgment is coming to an end. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, to summarize, you're a joke to all the nations around you. But Ezekiel makes a distinction here. I just made it kind of in passing. I don't want you to miss it. Ezekiel says they've become guilty by the blood they have shed. Okay? Guilty by the blood they have shed and defiled by the idols they have made. Okay? Two kinds of charges. Right? Do you see it? Guilty by the blood you have shed, defiled by the idols that you've made. We see the same kind of dual identifiers in the previous verse, actually, in verse 3. A city sheds blood, that's the guilt, and that makes idols to defile herself. We see the same pairing in verse 3. So let me talk to you briefly about uh, this, this distinction that's happening that, that maybe, right, is it a distinction or is it two ways of saying, two different ways of saying the same thing? Let's dig into it a bit. Guilt, <clears throat> don't think about it too hard, means being guilty, having done wrong. So there is guilt as a state that a guilty person can be in, that is being guilty of a crime, you did it. And then there's also, we would say, feelings of guilt or maybe feelings of shame. That's part of it as well. But the, the point is that the guilty deserve punishment. That's what it means to be guilty. When God is describing the guilt of Israel through the prophet Hosea, He says that they have lying hearts and that they must bear their guilt. Okay, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. How interesting. So we have guilt, but then in the very next sentence, we have idolatry and defilement. The word, the word defilement's not there. I'm asking you to make the connection between we saw guilt and then we saw uh, idolatry and defilement put together in Ezekiel. In short, guilt or guiltiness is the state of the sinner wrongdoer, criminal, and it, it is deserving of fair and just punishment. So that's guilt. Let's talk about defilement just for a minute. To, defilement is to be put in an unclean state. Sometimes in Scripture, 
uh, I'm thinking mainly of, of the laws in Leviticus, being put in an unclean state could happen by accident and it could very often happen without sin. Okay? It could happen by accident. It could happen without sin. We've talked about this in our uh, How to Read the Bible class on Wednesday night. That in Leviticus, very often to be in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness was not itself sinful. The, the sin problem came if you tried to waltz into the presence of God when you were in an unclean state. So if it seems weird when you're reading Leviticus and you're like, you know, touching a dead body uh, makes you unclean. Well, does that mean it was sinful? Like you go to a, a funeral and you bump the coffin, so now have you sinned? No. No, in that, in that moment you were ceremonially, ritually unclean. And so you had to go through the process to be made clean again. But that was not, a, not an issue of sin. It was only an issue of sin if you tried to waltz into the presence of God in an unclean state. Okay? <clears throat> Here in Ezekiel, this use of the word defilement does refer to sin. Because we see that also in the Bible. Think of uh, Isaiah. Right? In his vision before the throne, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst of people of unclean lips. He was most certainly talking about sin. So we are talking here about de- defilement brought about by sin. This is an aspect of sin that we don't talk about as much as kind of modern Americans. We talk about guilt. We, we, we talk about the guilt of sin. Defilement is a concept we are perhaps less familiar with, but it is still absolutely relevant in our culture, in our day. If you've ever worked with a victim of abuse, especially sexual abuse, you might hear language like, I felt like I could never take enough showers to get clean again. That's, that's the idea of defilement. In the case of an abuse victim, of course, we're talking about being sinned against. Defilement can also come, though, by committing sin, as I've already said. That is, by our actions, and especially even by our words. This is Ezekiel's language earlier in the chapter of slandering to shed blood. In other words, you might almost think of that as like planning an assassination with with false witnesses, Uh, uh, slandering somebody, saying they did something they didn't so that they end up getting killed. And so, uh, so it makes sense that if we can use uh, slandering to shed blood, if, if speech and this kind of guilt go hand in hand, that Jesus would say in Matthew 15 that it's not food that goes into a man that makes him unclean, but rather the words that flow out of his heart. Sorry, I guess I didn't put it in there. Uh, Matthew 15:18 is not, not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but is rather what flows out of his heart that defiles him, Jesus says. But if I had to make one difference between guilt and defilement, guilt is simply being guilty of a sin. Defilement, though, is not really a legal state. Again, it's a state of filth, a state of uncleanness. By way of an analogy, if you've ever walked into a room where there's like a really offensive odor, right? Okay, that's awful. I want to know like what it is so I can stop it or open a window or something. But then if you can't open a window or something or figure out what it is, and it's not too terribly strong, give it 15 minutes, right? And you, you kind of become, I don't know what they call nose deaf or nose blind to it. You just you stop noticing it as much. You become desensitized to it. 
I had a roommate in college who once made a bet with a friend that he could go 20 days without showering and nobody would notice. He did not make this bet with me. I was just his roommate. I was part of the reason he lost the bet, though, because I was his roommate. And over time, he became more and more desensitized to his own smell. The rest of us who were not joining in the defilement were the ones who, still living as the regularly showered ones, knew that there was an issue. Defilement because of sin is a bit like that. It puts your heart into an unclean state. The longer you remain there, the longer your filth feels more comfortable. Your, your normal changes. And as you incur more and more guilt, again, there's a desensitizing because this is just where you live now. So why not dig deeper? You're already covered. My, my point, what, what Ezekiel is trying to help Jerusalem to realize, and what I want you to see this morning, is that sin is a thief and a destroyer. Now, we all, we all know this. Right? If you're a Christian, you know sin is destructive. But because we live in a, in a mostly therapeutic culture, we tend to define destruction as that which brings about immediate physical or psychological harm. Okay? Immediate physical or, or psychological harm. The reason I bring that up is because our text in Ezekiel doesn't really abide by our distinctions there. Notice this list. If we can go to the list in the slides. It seems almost haphazard to us. So from about verse 7 to 12, we've got this list, right, that, that God, Yahweh, the covenant lawyer, is proceeding uh, with against Israel. You have father and mother are treated with contempt, sojourners, that is, travelers or foreigners, uh, suffering extortion, they're being wronged uh, economically, financially. Fatherless and widow are wronged. Despising of holy things. Profaning of Sabbaths. Now, wait a minute, we just jumped from, I mean, okay, family trouble to mistreatment of weak and vulnerable people to profaning Sabbaths? Keep going, please. Slander to shed blood. Okay, now we're on to murder. And lying, eating on the mountains, that is, uh, idolatrous rituals, lewdness and perversion from uh, 9c through 11, taking bribes to shed blood, <clears throat> extorting, that is, we'll just say financially mistreating neighbors, treating them like they don't matter, they're only a means to the end of your money, forgetting God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So when we, when we see this, a list like this, and I've kind of, yeah, go ahead, go ahead to that next one. We, we might kind of categorize them like so. You have sins of physical harm, shedding blood, murder, extortion, greed. Those we would recognize, I think even our wider unbelieving culture would say that's wrong in most cases. You have sins against authority, despising father and mother. That's quickly fading. You have sins of religious wrongdoing, sexual immorality, perversion, idolatry, uh, seeing these things as sin, I mean, if anything, in the month of June, you learn that that's absent from the culture as well. We would say, we see something like extortion, we would say, obviously bad, takes advantage of a vulnerable person. What about these other things, though? 
I think a lot of times in our present historical moment, some of the things in this list will say, well, no, those aren't as bad. Those aren't as destructive. Because, again, think back to what I said earlier. We have trouble assessing immediate physical or psychological harm from them, which is the standard that we're using right now, culturally speaking. And it is, by the way, possible to appear rather nice and gentle while being engaged in some of these sins. Okay, so so let's make this clear. You do not go to heaven for being perceived as nice. And you do not go to hell for being perceived as mean. It is really important you understand this. Otherwise, you will, I promise you, in the course of your life, meet some really nice pagans. There are plenty of them. And if you've been trained to think that God's people are the nice ones and Satan's people are the mean ones, you're going to conclude that apparently there's lots of sin that just doesn't matter. Because it's possible to be perceived as a perfectly nice person while committing it. One of the most controversial aspects of Christianity, though, not just today, but like pretty much through our whole history, is that God tells His people, you are, in fact, not permitted to defile yourselves. I don't care how hard you work at being nice to everyone. You don't have the right to, well, to shed blood and call it a choice. You don't have the right to dismiss God's order of man and woman and violate each other. And this is, this is the reference to perversion and lewdness. It's, what I want you to get is that the defilement is akin to shedding blood. Sin is a destroyer, not only of our bodies, but also of our souls. It also destroys, in a way, our minds. Did you see it at the end of... Um, at the end of our text in verse 12, is that the next one we've got? Yeah. Take bribes to shed blood, interest and profit, make gain of your neighbors by extortion, but, this is at the end of the list, me you have forgotten. Toleration of sin causes forgetfulness of God. It has to. Forgetfulness of God is what destroys a people. This has been part of the ruin of Christianity in our land. We, we stopped caring if our neighbors forgot about God. So long as they behave themselves and practice niceness. As long as my neighbors are nice people who don't cause me any trouble. As long as my family are nice people who aren't rude to me at Thanksgiving. As long as my children are well-behaved, successful, gentle, well-adjusted people. It doesn't matter if they forget God. I think, I mean, a lot of a, a lot of. Christian confessing people fell into this trap. And this attitude has brought us to a point where people will actually take pride in perversity and celebrate it all June long. But what if, I, I offer this to you, what if things like the divorce rate, skyrocketing depression, ubiquitous anxiety, the appalling drug and opioid epidemic, the absolutely unhinged, trembling fear of death and disease. The total confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman. What if all of it together finds its root in simply forgetting God? And so I, I, what I am urging you to this morning 
is not to yawn at the, at the problem of defilement, which over time reshapes the unthinkable into the permitted. Again, think of the, the analogy with the smells on you and the dirt and, and it's, it's your new normal. Right? The, the unthinkable becomes permitted, then the permitted becomes acceptable, then the acceptable becomes the celebrated. So what, what hope do we have against such a, a tide? Well, the text gives us good news, though it wasn't good news in the moment when it was given to Israel. Verse 13, the, the news is that God is the destroyer of sin. The answer is God Himself. In verse 13, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and the blood that's been shed in your midst. And again, at this point in the text, blood, uh, shedding of blood encompasses everything. It's a shorthand for the whole package. Excuse me. And then the Lord Almighty asks what has to be an absolutely chilling question in verse 14. Can your courage endure or can your hands be strong in the day that I shall deal with you? Basically, do you think you can handle it? Do you think you can handle it when the Almighty confronts your sin? Do you think you can handle it when the blinding light comes into the room and shines on your uncleanness and defilement? The answer, dear saints, has to be no. It has to be us turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, rescue us. Save us. Save us from ourselves. And in a way, Ezekiel makes that kind of call. He, he tells them in verse 15, God tells them, excuse me, through Ezekiel, I will scatter you, disperse you out, because just a, again, a one-sentence sermon on that is that sin in concentrated groups tends to get worse and worse and worse. So, so scattered, they're going to have less opportunities to provoke one another to sin. And I will consume your uncleanness out of you. This is the good news, but not good news in this context. This is a word of judgment. God is administering a kind of spiritual chemotherapy. Sometimes, a people will grow so sick with sin that it will require something drastic to wake them up. Sometimes a nation can fall so sick with sin that it will require something drastic to wake it up. What the cross shows us and what Christianity has confessed through the ages is that God is more resolutely committed to the destruction of your sin than you are. Amen. So much so that Jesus, to secure the good news of sin conquered, bleeds and dies on a cross so that He might silence your guilt and cleanse you from your defilement. God is resolutely more committed to destroying that which threatens His creation. So why is He here so opposed to His own people? Not only because they are guilty, but because they have been so defiled that, that at this point they are more beast-like than man-like. And so is there hope given to us? There is hope, dear saints, given to us to confess when we hear of judgment texts like this. I think our inclination, at least mine, is to go straight to like, 
tragedy apocalypse endgame, right? What I mean is, when when I read judgment texts like this, my temptation is to go, huh, well, that's probably us, probably tomorrow. That's the temptation, I think. And I'm going to use that word, temptation. I, I think about... I think about 100 years of really, really bad readings of the book of Revelation have brought us to that inclination. Where just automatically, any time we read a text about judgment, we, mat- we, we jump to the conclusion, oh, wow, we must be there. Let's throw up our hands. The end is just around the corner. Everything's about to burn down. What's the sense in planting trees or having children or building cities? What we really need to do is build bunkers and wait Jesus out. (laughs) That's also probably a different sermon. (laughs) My point is that when we read a text about judgment of a sinful people, I actually don't think we're supposed to throw up our hands and say, well, guess that's us, guess it's tomorrow. I think what we're supposed to say is, oh, that could be us unless we repent today and let it start with me. You know, I've, I've already told you, and I mean, you, if, if, unless you're colorblind, you couldn't help but notice we've painted the walls with it, so to speak. This is the traditional day in the church calendar where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, where the, the consuming fire of God came not to destroy, though, right? But to to fit the mouths of the disciples and apostles for the work that was before them. And this was done to quote Ezekiel, if I may, in the sight of all the nations, right? All the people waiting outside that upper room to hear that first Christian sermon so that they would, they would do what? So they would leave behind their God-forgetfulness and come to know the Lord Jesus. And so we must come to Christ. That's that's the answer. We must be born again. We must continually repent of the sin that makes us guilty and leaves us defiled. So this should not... It's it's not only repentance of the, the, the headlining bloodshed sins, but also the ones that defile me and I think nobody knows about and I think are basically harmless, but in fact are slowly numbing my soul, which is absolutely affecting and hurting my family and my friendships and maybe my church and my neighbors in ways that my God-forgetful heart cannot see. To this, Jesus says, come and be forgiven of your guilt and Come and be washed from all your defilement. Do not throw up your hands and say, I am far too gone and far too defiled for God to clean. Come and be made clean. You see, defilement not only, again, puts us in a bad state, but over time makes us believe that the state is both permanent and hopeless. Such that we can show up for church and confess a God who can move mountains but not marriages. He can do miracles unless the miracle is liberation from the problem I've got. Forgiveness of an enemy, maybe. He can raise people from the dead. 
but he can't rescue me from my own desires and impulses. He can calm storms, but my fearful, anxious heart is so far beyond his reach. Well, what we don't realize is that our enemy, Satan, is absolutely fine with playing the long game. And he will happily, slowly desensitize you to soul-defiling sins that will make you forget the commands and promises of God, while, by the way, still allowing you to be perfectly sweet and generous and gentle and nice. Jesus Christ comes to forgive you of the guilt of your sin and to cleanse you from all of its defilement. He means not only to clear your record, but to wash your wounds from the failures and losses of the years. It will take time. Restoration does. God grows people like trees, not bottle rockets. But let today be the day of repentance. Be rid of your constant fear of your neighbor so you can actually start loving them. Be rid of your sinful patterns or maybe addictions that are basically kneecapping your spiritual maturity and keeping you fearfully silent and timid before your accuser. Come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven. Come to Jesus Christ and be cleansed. And let today be the day. Talk to me. Talk to an elder. Talk to, I would wager, just about anybody in this church to know how to know Jesus, to be forgiven of your guilt and cleansed of your defilement today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So our Father, we ask for you to make clear to us, give us eyes to see, and in, in a sense, give us noses to smell the spiritual defilement wherever it would beset us. That we might be cleansed, forgiven of our guilt, and given a better story. What you did with ordinary fishermen on the day of Pentecost so long ago reminds us afresh that nothing is too great for our God. And you have done the unthinkable. You've placed this gospel on the lips of sinners and considered that sufficient to conquer the world. And so as we move forward, Father, with gladness and joy, encouraged by your word, and here at your table, fed by your body and blood. Grant that we would go forward confident and joyful, marching together behind our captain, Christ Jesus. For his is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen.